I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. Today on the podcast, we have the apology episode. Every segment with an I'm sorry, my bad, lo siento, perdóname, excusame, je suis désolé, mi dispiace. In 2017, my publisher, Random House Knopf, sent me to New York City to be part of uh, an author festival set up by the author and publisher David Levitan. During this festival, I was going to speak at the New York Public Library, visit schools in the city, meet with librarians, read at McNally Jackson as part of a writer's writing on sex panel, and sign books at Books of Wonder. It was an awesome event, and I was excited. But when I travel, I travel to climb. More often than not, I don't do as many book events. So my travel backpack is actually my climbing backpack. So for flying to New York, I dumped all my climbing gear out of my medium-sized backpack, one that would fit on a plane overhead compartment. And then I packed all my stuff for New York. I packed nice clothes and regular clothes and books and a few other things. And then the morning of, you know, four in the morning, I made myself a really good lunch and I put it into the top of the pack. And then I grabbed my ID, my wallet, and I went to the airport. When I got to the airport, I got my boarding passes. And then I went to TSA and I showed them my ID and I went through the line and they ran my bag through once. And then they ran my bag through again. And then three times, and then an agent called me over to a corner, and he said, is there anything you'd like to tell us, sir? And I was like, sorry, what? And then he said, is there anything you'd like to tell us, sir? And I was like, um, I don't think so. Then they ran my bag through for a fourth time. Then they ran it through for a fifth time, and they put it over in this special area, and they called in another TSA agent. And that person started uh, looking at the outside of the bag. And then the TSA agent next to me, he brought me over into a private corner and he said, sir, we're going to have to search you. Is there anything you'd like to tell us? And I was like, I don't, I, I don't think so. And then he said, is there anything you want to tell us about your bag? And I was like, um, it's a backpack. And he's like, would you like to tell us anything about what's in your bag? And I was like, I don't... Um, I, I, there's, I mean, I don't think there's, there's, I don't, there's clothes, uh, books that I'm going to sign and give away. Um, my lunch is in there. He's like, would you like to tell me what's in the top of the bag? And I was like, my lunch. And he's like, what's in the top of the bag other than your lunch? And I was like, nothing. He's like, okay, sir. And then, uh, I looked over and the other TSA agent was, Um, waving a wand over the top of my bag and it was crackling and beeping and going nuts. And then the agent looks at me and he's like, sir, I'm going to have to search you. And I was like, okay. So then they start searching me and, um, you know, it's it's always fun when a stranger searches your body crevices. And then um, 
He didn't find anything, so then he walked me over to the agent by the bag, and the agent was like, uh, is anything going to stick or poke me if I open this bag? And I was like, no, um, n- not at all. He's like, I'm going to open the top of this bag now. Is that safe if I open the top of this bag, sir? And I was like, uh, yeah, okay. And then they both look at me, and they're like, sir, would you like to explain the bomb-shaped item in your bag? And I was like, the bomb-shaped item? And I was like, I don't think I have a bomb-shaped item in my bag. And they're very frustrated with me. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to be frustrating. I don't know what we're talking about here. And they said, you don't know anything about a bomb-shaped item in the top of your bag. And I was like, I do not know anything about a bomb-shaped item in the top of my bag. And then they unzip the top of my bag. And the TSA agent pulls out a cucumber that I'd put in there. I'd made myself a sandwich for lunch and a cucumber because cucumbers are delicious. And he was like, oh, it's a cucumber. And then they look at each other and they're like, well, what about the bomb making residue? And I was like, what? And they're like, what about the bomb making residue? And I was like, on my, in my, with my cucumber? And they're like, well, there's bomb making residue. Our wand went off multiple times. Then I look in the top of my bag, and it's got climbing chalk spilled all over it. And I guess you can use calcium bicarbonate for something to make a bomb. I have no idea what. And I said, this is my rock climbing bag. That's rock climbing chalk. And both of the TSA agents look at me like I'm insane because I packed a cucumber in my climbing pack. And then they look at each other again, and they're like, okay, we're going to let you go on. Years ago, when I was trying to become a better rock climber, I went on an extended climbing trip at Smith Rock State Park in Central Oregon. I got a ride with my friend Lee, and we climbed together for the first three days in the park. We camped at the Bivy, the tent site, and then we would hike down into the River Canyon. We would climb all day and then come back up, eat dinner, crash, and go do it all over again the next day. Well, on day three, I got on a route that was harder than any of the routes I'd tried before. It was the first time I tried a somewhat famous route, a route called Chain Reaction, which is actually the overhanging rock climbing route that's on the cover of a cliff bar. So if you've ever eaten a cliff bar, you can picture me on that route trying to get through that overhang. And the thing is, I was struggling. I kept falling on the crux, and then once I got the crux, I kept falling just after at the r- top of the roof. And I looked down as I was struggling on this rock climb chain reaction, and underneath me was a world-famous pro climber named Ron Kauk, somebody I'd only watched in videos and kind of admired from afar. And not only was he underneath chain reaction, but he was laying on the ground, and he was watching me work on it. And he said, is that route pretty tough? And I looked down at him and thought, not for you. But he was nice. He stayed there and he encouraged me as I struggled through the route. And afterward, we talked for a few minutes. And then he walked on to hike with his friend. And Lee and I walked the other direction. And we climbed until it was evening. 
and then we hiked back out of the river canyon to the bivy. As we got there on day three, Lee had to pack up and leave. So he packed, threw all his stuff in his truck and headed out. And there were kind of ominous purple clouds in the west. And it was late winter, pretty cold, and this wind came in. We knew it was going to be a storm. And then Ron and his friend hiked out of the canyon too. And Ron walked up to me and we ended up talking for a couple hours about life and climbing and outdoor programs and ethics. We talked for a couple hours by his car. And then finally he drove off too. And I looked around the parking lot, realized there were only a few climbers left. I went and made some dinner at my tent, came back to the parking lot, and every single car was gone. Everybody had left the bivy, and the storm rolled in. And that night, it snowed 12 inches on my tent. And I got up in the morning, and I shook all the snow off so that my tent wouldn't collapse. And I realized that once again, I was alone in the park. But I wasn't too worried, because my friend was going to show up at 10 a.m., and we were going to climb for the next few days together. I made some breakfast and some coffee, and I read for a couple hours, and then I walked back out to the road and looked for my friend Jeff. It was just after 10 o'clock. Now, Jeff's usually late to everything, so I wasn't thinking that he was going to be there right at 10 o'clock, but maybe 10.30. So I sat under a juniper tree, and it started snowing hard again. And I watched the snow accumulate, and there was more than a foot on the ground, and the world was gorgeous. And because it had snowed since everybody had left, there were no tracks, no car tracks, no hikers, no climbers, nothing. Just a big white world out in front of me. At 10.30, Jeff wasn't there. At 10.45, Jeff wasn't there. At 11, Jeff wasn't there, and it kept snowing. I walked back to my tent to knock a couple fresh inches of snow off the top so it wouldn't collapse again. And I made some more coffee. And I drank coffee and read in my tent. And it was kind of nice with the sound of the ticking snow on the surface. At 11.30, I walked back out to the road and I stood under a juniper and watched it snow softly all around me. And the snow had accumulated and it was gorgeous and it was still. And I was all, all alone. And by 12 o'clock, I started to think, what if Jeff doesn't come? What if he couldn't get over the pass this morning? What if he can't drive in the entrance road? What if there's nobody else in the entire state park? I wasn't really sure late winter if there were even the rangers there yet. I knew they were there in the summer, but I wasn't sure. I hadn't seen any rangers in days. So I was pretty alone, and I started to contemplate how I would hike out. If I would go out along the road and I would get back to Terrebonne or Redmond. If I would try to get to a gas station and use a phone. I didn't have a phone with me. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I went back to my tent and I ate some lunch and I waited. And at 12.30, Jeff wasn't there. And at 12.45, he wasn't there. I went out to the road around 1.00. And I stood under that same juniper, and the snow was starting to clear up. It was still heavy on the ground, but it wasn't snowing hard anymore. And a little after one, Jeff drove into the parking lot in his Jetta without chains. 
And he drove in and he uh, parked his car. And he got out. And he was like, sorry, I'm a little late. And I was like, oh, it's okay. And he's like, yeah, sorry about that. But I was late because I went back for whiskey. And he held up a bottle of Maker's Mark whiskey. And I was like, what? And he was like, well, I drove through Redmond and then I drove back to Redmond because I thought it's snowing. We should sip some whiskey. And he held up the bottle again. Now, this was funny because Jeff doesn't drink whiskey. Not a little bit. Not at all. I don't drink whiskey. I'm not really a whiskey drinker. I have never bought a bottle of whiskey in my entire life. And to my knowledge, Jeff hadn't either. I mean, it was possible in the past, but he had whiskey now. Well, it was way too snowy to climb all day. It was too snowy to hike even without snowshoes. But we knew that the sun the next day would melt the snow. So we just settled in and we read and made food and hung out. And in the evening, we played cards and we sipped whiskey. And I don't mean we drank a lot of whiskey. We truly tiny sipped whiskey. In the whole evening while playing cards, we maybe drank that bottle down between the two of us an inch. We drank maybe one inch of whiskey. Now, I don't buy bottles of whiskey, so I don't know how many ounces that is, but it's not very many for an entire evening between two people. We barely dented that bottle. So then we went to sleep. And I got up in the morning and I drank some water and I made coffee and I made breakfast and I read a little bit and I was hanging out and the snow was clearing and the sun was bright and the world was beautiful. And I finally shook Jeff awake and I was like, hey man, we should go hike and climb. It's looking beautiful and the sun's melting the snow and all the rocks that face east are already clear. We could climb some of those routes. And Jeff was like, oh, <laughs> And he was groaning and moaning in his sleeping bag. And I was like, are you okay, buddy? And he's like, I'm just so hungover. And I was like, Jeff, you had like an ounce of whiskey. You're not hungover. He's like, no, I am. I've had it. I feel terrible. I was like, okay, well, why don't you sip a little water and I'll make you some coffee and maybe the caffeine will help. So... He drank some water out of his water bottle and I made him some fresh coffee and he drank it and he just looked horrible, like he might puke, like he could barely open his eyes. I was like, oh gosh, I'm sorry, man. So we hung around camp for a while and that was fine because the snow melted more with the sun. And early afternoon, Jeff finally felt good enough and hydrated enough to get up, get on his hiking shoes and put his climbing gear and water and food in his pack, and hike into the park with me. But he didn't feel good. I loaned him one of my hats, and he pulled it low, and he found sunglasses in his car, and he wore sunglasses and a low hat, and he stumbled along behind me, super hungover with the headache, all the way down into the River Canyon and along the river and around the back, and we went to a multi-pitch climb called First Kiss. And we climbed that route. But first kiss wasn't very romantic for us that day because 
I let every single pitch, and Jeff just shuffled on behind me with his hat low and his sunglasses on. And he was like, I'm sorry, man. This is all I can climb today. I'm just so hungover. It's really important that a person knows how to apologize meaningfully. So for this next short segment, Rue and I poured cups of Coke and put in ice cubes and just went back and forth working on the start of our best apologies. I'm sorry that I'm not sorry, but... I'm sorry that this just isn't about you, but... I'm sorry that this is confusing to you, but... I'm sorry that you thought I did that, but... I'm sorry you don't understand what real friendship is, but... I'm sorry that I was just trying to help you, but... I'm sorry that maybe your childhood was weird, but... I'm sorry that you saw it in that way, but... I'm sorry that you're passive-aggressive, but... I'm sorry that you have issues and I don't, but... I'm sorry that you don't have a boyfriend that's as good as mine, but... I'm sorry that you're jealous of me, but... I'm sorry that I have a really good job, but... I'm sorry that you're poor, but... I'm sorry that you're super lonely, but... I'm sorry, but this isn't really my problem. I'm sorry if I feel really good about myself, but... I'm sorry if I beat you at everything, but that's not really my fault. I was coaching my daughter Rainey's soccer team when she was in third grade in a kids' sports league. Kids sports is all one word. And it was not a very tough league, but we had third grade girls and they worked hard and we put together a really good season. And halfway through, we realized, wait, we haven't lost a single game. We're undefeated. We've also 
not tied to any games. We're just straight winners. We didn't mention this to girls. We didn't want to jinx anything. And the second half of the season was coming up. So we just kept coaching them, and they kept working hard, and they kept winning games. And it came down to the final game of the season. And with five minutes left in the final game of the season, we were losing 1-0, to zero, and the undefeated season had almost slipped from our grasp when all of a sudden our midfielder put the ball out up into space and my daughter Rainey broke from the right wing onto this open ball on the other team's side of the field and she just took off with her little third grade legs and she came onto the ball and dribbled it towards the goal which was just two flags planted in the grass 10 feet apart there was a little third-grade keeper with her arms wide, looking terrified on the other side. And Rainey sprinted at her and dribbled the ball. When she was about 20 feet away, she took the shot, and it scooted along the ground past the keeper and tied the game 1-1. And Rainey saved the season, and the girls finished out the game and the season, having never lost a single game. So Rain was in incredible good mood after the game. And my co-coach, Steve, he had bought these really nice little soccer balls to commemorate the season, and he'd written undefeated in Sharpie on them. And he had also brought a bunch of Sharpies to the game. And as we ate orange slices and drank Capri Suns, the girls handed each other's balls all around, and everybody signed and wrote sweet little notes on these little soccer balls in all different colors of Sharpie. And when I got Rain's ball, her celebratory season-ending undefeated ball for the season that in the last game she had saved, when I got her soccer ball in my hands, I picked up a black Sharpie. And because I'm not a good person and I have a weird sense of humor, I thought it would be funny to draw a toilet on her soccer ball. I don't know. I thought maybe irony or something that a third grader would definitely not appreciate. And I drew a very realistic toilet, like the seat, the stem, and the tank, and the flush handle, everything. I drew a toilet on her soccer ball. And when she got her ball back after we'd all signed and written nice notes and drawn hearts and stars and all those kinds of things on each other's soccer balls. When she got her soccer ball back, she looked at it and she was smiling really big. And then she turned it over and there's a big fat toilet and black Sharpie, permanent Sharpie on her celebratory season ending soccer ball. And she burst into tears. And I was like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? And I take the ball from her and I spit on the toilet and I try to rub it off but it's in permanent Sharpie and there's nothing I can do and Steve bought exactly the number of balls to match the number of girls on the team and there are no blank soccer balls and there's only one with Rain's name on it and I just hugged her and I said I'm so so sorry I don't know what I was thinking I, I have no idea why I did that I'm just really sorry Rainy
a teacher, my nightmare is to have my students work really hard on something for multiple days, work really hard on it, edit it, revise it, whatever it is, turn it in, and then I lose all the papers, whatever kind of papers they are. So they work hard, they turn them in, I lose them, and then I have to say, uh, mm, we're going to have to do that over again. Or, I'm sorry, but that thing you worked really hard on, I can't give you any feedback or grades because I lost it. And I'd made it through years of teaching until about a decade in. I was teaching an English 9 class, and the class had to do what was called Sim Expository Essays for the state. It was a state requirement. And you work on these essays for almost two weeks. They write outlines, they write drafts, they peer edit, they revise, they revise again, they finish the final draft, then they type it up, then they turn them in, you score them on the state rubric, you hand it back to them, but then they have to hand them back into you and you have to file them for the state records. So my class, my ninth grade English class, they do this whole process over a couple weeks and they turn them in and I put them in this one file folder and I only keep them in one place because I'd never want to lose something like that. And I put them on the corner of my desk so I know exactly where they are. I grade them only in that one location and then the goal is to give them back. Except after my freshman turn in these essays and I put them in this special folder and I leave them in this one place, I think, I lose the whole class set of essays. So I was like, oh man, I guess I put them in my backpack. So I go through my backpack, but I can't find them in there. So then I think maybe I thought they were the graded essays from the last set like a couple months ago. So maybe I put them in the to-file folder in the English department. So I go to the English department and I look in the filing cabinet in the to-file section and I can't find them. So I search on my department desks and then I search in my office. And then I'm like, well, I went down to the PE office to do this other thing. Maybe I took them with me in my hand and I wasn't thinking. And I go down there and I look for them. I can't find them there. Then I go back to my classroom and look all through my desk. And then I think, maybe I took them home. I don't, I don't know. So I search for these essays for a week. And I don't find them. So I don't grade them. I don't do anything with them. I don't grade them. I don't file them. I can't find them. So I stand up in front of my class. And I say, as a teacher, it's my worst nightmare to have you work really hard on something. And then for me to lose it. But that's what I did. I just need to apologize to all of you. The state essays that you wrote that I'm supposed to grade, hand back to you, then you hand them back into me, and then I file for the state the state essays that you worked on for two weeks. I lost the whole class set. And I'm really sorry. You're going to have to do the whole process over again. I mean, hopefully you won't have to outline as much and you won't have to write as detailed a drafts because you've already done that. Maybe you'll have them in the back of your mind, but we'll still have to peer edit and revise and do at least that part of the process again because even though I put them in this one type of folder and I just leave them on the corner of my desk, I lost the whole set and I'm really, really sorry. 
And then this freshman boy, his name was Earl Saint-Sauvier, he raises his hand and he says, Hey, uh, Hoff, um, do you mean this class set of essays? And then he reaches in his backpack and he pulls out the file folder that's so familiar to me. And he says, yeah, I saw these on the corner of your desk and I didn't know what they were, so I just put them in my backpack last week. Sorry about that. And I looked at Earl and I looked at the class and I looked back at Earl and I was like, why would you do that? There are lots of ways to make actual mistakes as a teacher. I was teaching in the integrated outdoor program at South Eugene High School, and we like to play games to build community, all kinds of games in the park, like wiffle ball in the park, or barefoot soccer in the park, or capture the flag, anything. One of our favorite games is barefoot mud rugby in the rain. So we learn how to play this speed touch version of rugby it's really fast, it's really fun, and we play in small groups, put a student leader with each team, and we have a learning day, and then we play our first game of barefoot mud rugby. But this time I'm going to talk about was actually during a learning day, so it was the very first time we played rugby in the class, and nobody knew how to play. And I was on a team with five students, and on this team of five, there was an incredibly unathletic boy and a pretty unathletic girl. Well, the unathletic boy was trying to make up for his lack of athleticism by, you know, uh, being overly aggressive, being intense, yelling, trying too hard, getting frustrated with himself and other people, but always blaming other people. So early in this learning day, this unathletic boy, he takes the ball and he starts to run forward, and he's about to be touched. And so he tries to pitch it to the girl just to his left. And it's not a good pitch. It doesn't hit her right in two hands or kind of float right in front of her so she can run into the pitch. She kind of has to slow down, and it's behind her, and she reaches back with her right hand. And it's not a great pitch, and she's not incredibly athletic, and it bounces off her right hand, and it hits the turf, and it's... The other team's ball. Well, that doesn't really matter because it's just a learning game and we're just playing to build community. So it doesn't matter if there's a turnover. There's nothing we can win in this game. Not for a championship. It's not even on a really competitive day. So I start to jog back like we're going to play defense when I see that this unathletic boy takes two steps towards the girl that Dropped the ball, sort of. I mean, it was his bad pitch, but she dropped the ball. And he says, you dumb bee. So I was like, whoa. We don't act like this. We don't talk like this. And I went to firmly put my hand on his shoulder to let him know that he does not. He is not ever allowed to talk to somebody like that. Even if it was an important game, which it wasn't. But when I put my hand on his shoulder... Right away, I know from experience, just in an instant, I know he's going to punch me. And he is facing the other direction, 
But when I put my hand on his shoulder, he spins around and throws this big, sloppy roundhouse punch at my head. And from experience, I know when someone's going to punch me just body language-wise. You know, I've fought a lot in my life. And I know he's going to punch me. And I know it's going to be sloppy. And I know it's going to be a big, wide swing. I can tell all of that in the first second. And there's a process that I go through when someone's about to punch me, right? First thing I do is I change elevations, so I get low. Second thing I do is I go towards them, because if you low get low and go towards them, they're definitely going to miss over the top. Next, I put my head into their sternum, pop behind the back of their knees, and I take them down with a move called a Russian double. Next, if I take somebody down with a Russian double, I know they're going to land hard on their back. So I slide up into full mount, and I take their throat. So I can kind of choke them, right? So I take them down, then I choke them. And the final thing I do is as quickly as I can, I punch them as hard as I can in the face, right? Natural multi-step process when someone throws a big sloppy high punch at your head. So this boy, he spins and throws his roundhouse punch, and I change elevations, and I step in, and I put my head in his sternum. And I pop behind his knees, and I lift him up and off the ground, and I slam him hard on his back, and I go into my mount position. I grab his throat, firmly choke and push a little bit, forcing him into the ground, cutting off his wind, and I lift my hand above my head to punch him as hard as I can, as fast as I can. And all the alarms in my head go off. And I'm like, this is a student, this is a student, this is a student. And I realize what I'm about to do and what I'm sort of in the process of doing already. And I let go of his throat and I pop to my feet and I take a quick breath and I look around and everybody on the field is watching me. Everybody saw him swing. Everybody saw me take him down. Everybody saw me grab his throat and choke him and go to punch him. But I didn't punch him, but he was so close. Everybody knew exactly what I was going to do. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. So, so at the end of class, I run, literally run to the principal's office. I run, knock on his door furiously. He opens it, and I step inside and close the door behind me. And I was like, I need to tell you what I just did. It's really bad. I'm so sorry. This podcast episode is dedicated to one of my best friends, Ben Temple, who makes me crack up every single time he looks at one of his sons and he says, I'm sorry, buddy. Also, I need to end with an apology to my listeners. Ever since the pandemic started, I just really struggled to consistently make episodes. and I should have kind of dedicated more time and organization to putting episodes out every couple weeks. So I'll work on that. And lastly, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my-